Hey, you're listening to Curry Talks with Larry Curry. Your Worship, uh, first of all, congratulations on your uh, being, you know, co- co- uh, elected as the mayor of Lubulawayo. And I think the people of uh, Lubulawayo can see the palpable excitement in the people of Lubulawayo. And you have shared uh, your, you, um, I've invited you to share your ideas of what you have planned for for the people of Lubulawayo. I've also spoken to a couple of people from Lubulawayo, so I'm going to have a couple of questions from them. And I would like to, first of all, thank you for taking this opportunity to, to have a chat with me. Well, thank you, Larry. Um, and thank you for your congratulations. I must admit, um, I've joked with my family and friends that the correct word should be commiserations because uh, I'm daunted by the scale of the problems. And uh, in, in some ways, I'm concerned about people's expectations, whether they can actually be met, because uh, there, there are very serious problems facing the city. I mean, have limited resources. But, uh, you know, I mean, I'm determined to, to work as hard as possible. And it's a pleasure to be with you um, just to share some of my vision. Excellent. And one of the key things is communication. So I'm hoping that from this particular episode of Credit Talks 2, we're going to have you be able to talk to, 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 to outline what the people should expect. I want to spend a lot more time talking about your plan, but I must start with this. Some people have said, that you are an imposed mayor, someone handpicked by the president of your party mm-hmm. for a safe seat anyone would have won. What are your thoughts on that? So I'm, you know, I'm delighted to be able to answer that because this has um, become a consistent theme from people like Jonathan Moyer and others. So just let's go back into my history. I was first elected um, with a majority of 21,000 to 3,000 in at Bulawayo South in Keta in 2000. I was elected again in 2005 uh, by a massive majority. In 2008, I was elected um, as senator. It wasn't proportional representation then, a senator for Kumalu. And I was the only MDC Green person uh, to, to win countrywide. You know, I was up against MDCT and uh, ZANU PF. And so the point I'm making uh, from from that is that I have my own constituency. I wasn't imposed then, uh, and I haven't been imposed now. Um, If you you need facts to back this, I won my seat, Ward 4, with an 86% majority. Uh, That was higher than even Nelson Chamisu, who got 82%. It was considerably higher than uh, other councillors throughout the seat, and I think it's one of the highest winning margins in the country. Now, if you're imposed on an, an electorate, you don't get majorities of 86%. So the, the factual position uh, regarding this matter is that when I was asked by the Triple C leadership what I would like to do, I didn't actually want to stand. You know, I'm 65. I'm just about to turn 66. I've got seven grandchildren. Um, I'm very happy in my law firm. I'm a mountain biker. Uh, you know, quite frankly, the last thing I need is to go back into politics. And I said to the party that I was happy to be on the senatorial proportional representation list, but that I would be number six. So my name would be there under the party ticket, but there was no prospect of me being elected. And it was in, in that context that Nelson Chamisa, not only him, Nelson Chamisa, Welshman Mulbe, 
people like Paul Tembenyati, uh, Zibangelizwe Nkomo, head of Zapu, came to see me. Uh, and, and, and several other civic leaders came and said they hoped that I would stand. And so on that basis, and particularly when Nelson Chamisa specifically asked me, I agreed to stand. Now, if that's in position, uh, well, then I've got a different understanding of, of the, the word. The fact of the matter is that Chamisa and others, uh, sorry, Nelson Chamisa had listened to uh, civic society leaders and other leaders in Bulawayo who wanted me to, to, to stand. And he responded to that and then asked me whether I would be prepared to stand. So this is, I'm afraid, Jonathan Moyo's nonsense. It's been picked up by the Chronicle and ZANU-PF. It bears no relation to the facts. Um, but the final answer to it is to go into social media, um, do the broad mass of the citizens of Bulawayo uh, think that I've been imposed? Are they against my election as mayor or are the majority in four of it? And that's, that's where the answer to that question lies. Okay, so now that we've talked about that, but I want to, like I said, I want to focus more on the key on what the daunting tasks you you have, because whatever every anybody's uh, thoughts on the matter is, the reality is you are the, the mayor of Bulawayo now, and that is the mega trend. So, what are the three key issues that you think your administration should t- should take care at least in the first year? So the, the immediate problems are number one: we we have to to clean up the city. Um, and I, by clean up, I mean not just physical litter, uh, also uh, the issue of corruption. Um, the city is now filthy. and We've lost pride in our city, and we've got to not only clean up, we have to develop strategies to ensure that once we've cleaned up, it remains clean. And that involves a, a multifaceted uh, approach, working with uh, local industry and business and residents and, and the like, um, to, to ensure that, as I said, we don't just clean up uh, on, on, on one occasion, but that we keep the city clean. Secondly, tied into the cleanup is the issue of corruption. Um, there have been far too many reports coming to me of uh, deeply rooted corruption. I don't know whether they are true. Uh, I've now started this process of reviewing contracts to see whether they are lawfully entered into and in the best interests of, of the citizens. So, so overall, those two, two points constitute the first uh, goal, the number one goal in, in, in this first year. The second thing um, concerns the, the issue of, of water and sanitation and sewerage. Um, we had a tour last week, and I was horrified to find that our sewage treatment plants are running way below capacity, some as low as 20% capacity, and we are pouring raw sewage into the Amguza River. That constitutes a major health hazard. Tied to that is the, the issue concerning supply of water. Um, and, you know, the government has been focused on Gua Shangani as the, as the uh, panacea, but all the engineers I speak to say that whilst that is a reasonable medium to long-term solution, it doesn't provide a short-term solution. Uh, 
and, and we need a short-term solution. Our dams are already low. Um, El Nino is developing in the Pacific. And whilst we hope it's not a poor rainy season, we have to plan for a, a poor rainy season. We, we should always work uh, conservatively and uh, work on the worst scenarios if we are to protect the lives of, of citizens of this great city. And I, I'm now looking at alternative sources. I'm, I'm very keen on trying to expand um, the use that the city has of Incisa Dam. You know, it's by far our biggest dam. We own 80% of it, but we are only able to draw a very small proportion of the water that we are entitled to. A lot of it just goes down the river to ultimately to the Indian Ocean, and a lot, a lot of it evaporates. And so that has to be my uh, the, the second broad issue of water and sanitation um, is, is the second uh, big issue. The third issue concerns um, our ability to, to deliver, deliver services. And in my briefing last week, I was horrified to learn that, uh, for example, we only have five functional ambulances. Uh, we should have 30. We only have four functional fire engines. We should have a minimum of 10. And we've only got six refuse garbage collection vehicles. Uh, we should have a minimum of, of 11. Um, and, and, of course, all of these um, vehicles are ultimately about the protection of health of our citizens. If people are sick, they need ambulances. Uh, if people face death through fire, they need fire engines. Um, and if we don't collect our garbage, then it becomes a very unhealthy city. So that would be my third area that we, we have to look at means of uh, getting those numbers up, getting fire engines, ambulances, and um, refuse collection vehicles uh, for, for the city. So those would be my three. So a lot to unpack there, but my first question, before I ask a follow-up questions and those things, the, is, uh, should the people of Malawi be expecting a dent on those particular issues, like movement of those particular issues as in the first year? Because my question was prefaced with the fact that, that those were the key issues that you'd look at uh, in the first year. So, so on the cleanup and corruption, um, I've already initiated our meeting with um, business and industrial leaders next week to try and develop a consensus so that we involve local businesses to supplement what the council is doing. I have already, in liaison with Town Clark, requested site of um, contracts that the, the city has entered into. Uh, I'm meeting with the uh, city's uh, Law firm next Tuesday, the senior partner of the law firm which represents the city, uh, to go through these contracts with him. Um, and, and so, yes, uh, not just the first year, but I, I hope that we'll make some dent on this in the first 100 days. Um, the water situation is, is more complicated. I, I hope that within the first year, we, we might have at least got the funding together and the, the tenders issued to try and re rehabilitate the sewage treatment plants. Um, I'm working with uh, water engineers, both the city engineers and uh, independent engineers with expertise to, to look at um, 
these alternatives, either by duplicating the pipeline uh, from Caesar to the Nema water treatment plant, um, or doing that and building a tunnel from uh, Incisa to Inyankuni Dam. Um, obviously, these projects are massive. They, they require the mobilization of a lot of capital. I'm not sure that the government has this money at its disposal. I may well have to go to the uh, international community to see if we can mobilize those resources. I doubt very much whether either of those will be implemented within a year, but I hope that uh, within a year we will at least uh, have raised sufficient money or pledges and uh, do the necessary clearances and have the drawings and the plans ready to, to start implementing. On the third one, um, I've really initiated a process uh, to, to meet the suppliers of vehicles um, and to understand how we can finance these better. Uh, and, and so, look, we need ambulances yesterday. We need these fire engines yesterday. Um, and, and so that has to be done, in my view, in, the next, in, in, in this coming year. So following up on that, I'm going to start off with cleaning up the city. One of the things that has always been brought up as an ISO, and I was there in Bilalio, um, I think a couple of weeks ago, it's a thorny issue of the vendor situation. Some have called for the city to just get rid of them. Is it as simple as that for you? No, it, it, it isn't as simple as that. It's um, Well, for two reasons. Firstly, we're dealing with the lives of people. We need to understand that the vast majority of these vendors are poor people. Many of them are single mothers. Uh, they have to provide food and clothing and school fees for their children. And if you go in with a bulldozer, um, one, one will be affecting the lives um, of not just those vendors, but their, their children. And, and no city can do that. Um, so, you know, that's... That, that's the, the, the first issue. Secondly, it's become highly politicized. We have um, space parents um, who are charging rental, and many of these are politically connected. Uh, and, and so because they've made it into a political issue, uh, it's not that easy, even if you wanted to go in with, with bulldozers. Uh, and, and so for those two reasons, but, you know, we, can't, we just can't, do that. But let me stress that I'm not too concerned about the second political issue. My primary concern is, is a compassionate one. Um, we need to work with the existing vendors. And, and in my view, the way to handle this is through a carrot and stick approach. Firstly, a carrot. Um, if you go and look at those vendors now, they are cheap by job. They are crammed into, and there are more people coming into that, that area. So it's very difficult for, for them adequately to market their, uh, their produce. Secondly, if you look at their circumstances, uh, there aren't adequate toilets. Uh, when it rains, they get wet. Their produce gets wet. When it's a freezing cold day, they're exposed to the elements. Um, and, and so... You know, aside from the interests of the city, aside from the interests of the landowners who have properties adjoining Fifth Avenue, um, it's not a satisfactory location for the vendors themselves. But what we've got to do now, and we started this process, is to 
to look at alternative venues. And we've got some that have been in the pipeline for 11 years, Egodini, for example, which has collapsed in a heap, and we need to resuscitate that because that has vending sites um, and that will draw some of those vendors away to far, uh, far better circumstances, quite frankly. But then I'm encouraging our uh, town planners and our engineers to look at other areas in the vicinity of Fifth Avenue uh, to see whether there aren't any open sites that might lend themselves to the, the construction of what I would describe as large warehouse roofs. If you can imagine uh, the equivalent of a factory without sides, okay? So you have steel supports and a massive um, corrugated iron roof properly built um, but open on its sides with uh, granite, uh, not granite, you know, concrete floors um, and proper vending bays uh, with proper toilets and uh, a properly constructed uh, terminus for for uh, commuter omnibuses and taxis um, with access, of course, to, to water. And that would provide, in my view, a, the type of venue uh, which would enable uh, vendors to sell their wares in, in much better circumstances. And it may even become a tourist attraction. Um, it may even attract more people because it would be a far more attractive place to visit. Um, and, of course, the, the key to it would be that the, the city would then get the benefit of of a nominal rental paid by vendors to, to the city. At present, these space barons uh, are getting rentals. It's completely illegal. In fact, it's criminal. The city isn't getting any um, payment of, of, of rentals from most of the, the vendors. So that's the strategy, the carrot of um, looking at locations where we can construct these, um, as I say, warehouse factory a type of buildings, when I say factory, I mean something that's aesthetically pleasing um, but is open and relatively cheap to build so that we can then persuade vendors to move from Fifth Avenue into a location which is far more beneficial for them, for the city, and for their customers. That's the carrot approach, and that, that has to lead the approach. But that ne then needs to be accompanied by the stick. Um, once we have provided vendors with an appropriate and a beneficial alternative, we then um, have to enforce the bylaws. Uh, the city has some 15,000 vending bays that have been designated by the city where people are meant to apply for vending licenses and pay the city a nominal amount very few of those have taken up. Uh, but we have to move towards a situation where vendors only operate from properly designated vending sites that they pay a nominal lease so that the city gets some, some benefit and some return for the services it provides. And that ultimately is the win-win situation. But to get there, we've got, as I said, a carrot and stick approach. But when we finally get there, there needs to be zero tolerance for, for breach of our bylaws so that we uh, restore sanity and law and order to the city.
Okay, so let me move on to the next thing that you talked about in cleaning out the city. And uh, you talked about corruption. Like you said, uh, there's no one that has been, uh, um, you know, identified as being involved in corruption yet. But there have been there has been a lot of talk in previous times of corruption within the city. But some will argue that members of your party um, were the ones who were there sitting. It's been an the the, the city of Lai has been in. Uh, in terms of the context of national uh, politics, uh, being in the opposition, but has been the governing party in Vilayo. How do how should people feel? Uh, what should people feel will be the difference that this new administration, the, the new government in Vilayo, is going to treat corruption differently and dealing with it as a scourge once and for all? Okay, so let me respond as follows. Firstly, and personally, as you know, although I was a, a member a founding member of the MDC going back to September 1999, I went with the smaller faction of the MDC in 2005. And since then, the party I've been a member of has not had control of the city since 2005. Okay. So speaking personally, uh, I concede that since 2018, I've been a member of the MDC Alliance and uh, the, the MDC Alliance certainly uh, has some, its councillors have some uh, legitimate questions to answer. Uh, but I would argue that the bulk of the corruption actually came before 2018. Um, but that's history. Um, if you look at the Chronicle today, I, I don't seek to duck this. Uh, the, the reality is that in some form or another, the opposition, not Zanu PF, has had control of the Bulawayo City Council um, since, I, I think, the first time we actually got control was 2001, uh, because that's when the uh, local government elections were held in September 2001. And, and we can't duck that. Um, al- although, of course, there are many reasons why the city's not performed, and a lot of that is because of Zanu PF's interference and obstruction. The fact is that there has been corruption and we can't duck that. We have to tackle it head on. And, and that's why I've said in today's Chronicle, I, I'm appalled by that. I'm not personally prepared to tolerate that. That's why in my uh, acceptance speech, I said I will adopt a zero tolerance approach to corruption under the triple C, which although it has its historical roots in the MDC, was set up as a completely new political party last year. And I hope that the Triple C will now chart a, a completely new course. Um, I will certainly do all in my power to ensure that corruption is, is rooted out of the Bulawayo City Council going forward. Okay, so it segues nicely to the next thing that I was wanted to talk about, which is the you mentioned the water supply issue and the government's uh, looking at Gwai and you say, okay, we still need to look at what is present. And in your talking about, uh, you know, what has happened over the last years, you talked about central government interference. Uh, ha- that has been something that has brought up uh, multiple times by uh, local government authorities that belong to opposition parties. So how will you deal with that set of circumstances to develop a less attritional relationship with central government to achieve the objectives that you're talking about? 
Yeah, so once again, in my acceptance speech, I said that I was going to adopt a non-partisan approach in running the city and that I would seek to implement policies which are in the interests of all citizens. I repeated that this morning in Bulawayo. Uh, Minister Nyoni, Nyoni, the Minister of Industry, was present and I spoke at a function uh, with her, uh, which um, was attended by industrialists and businessmen. And I, I said the same thing. Um, I'm not going to adopt a confrontational approach, although I disagree with this election, although I believe that this uh, election was won, in inverted commas, by Zane Piet, using unconstitutional and illegal means. Until that election is set aside, um, we have to get used to the reality that this is, at the very least, the de facto government we have to interact with. Uh, and so that, that will be my approach. Um, I, I can but hope that that is reciprocated. Uh, we know that there have been very hostile um, measures taken in, in the past. Uh, mayors have been re removed from office illegally. Uh, and there, there are a whole variety of policies which have been introduced in the last 20 years which have made the running of city councils exceptionally difficult. Um, but, you know, through dialogue and through, you know, personal intervention and, and just sheer persuasion, I, I hope that uh, we can get a, at the very least a functional uh, relationship. Only time will tell whether that will be successful. And then uh, one of what the things I was in recently, as I mentioned, one of the biggest issues after a visit to one of my old neighborhoods, which is Barn Green, Southwark, that area, was was the degradation of the roads there. Uh, how do you plan to work on there, on that? I raised this issue with Minister Nyoni this morning. You know, I had a briefing last week and was advised that Zanara and last year only allocated $2 million dollars to the Borough City Council. Uh, in the same briefing, we were told that the minimum amount of money that the city requires per annum is 15 million. Um, that, and by minimum, I mean that, that is just to do basic maintenance and, and rehabilitation. Uh, the city needs far more than that to, to get all our roads functioning. But tied into this is the, the fact that we have thousands of vehicles registered in the city and all of the vehicle license fees go to Zanara. Uh, I've asked our staff to let me have details, but I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that Zanara gets way more than $2 million from, from Bulawayo for vehicle licensing. Um, I want to see those figures. And if there is a huge disparity between what we pay and what we get back from Zamora, then I want an explanation. And there needs to be equity. Um, so that's, that's the first thing. We, we need to get a better balance um, and, and get the, the funds that we, 
we are entitled to in the city to enable us to do the development and rehabilitation of roads. But then another theme in, in a speech I gave this past Tuesday was that of self-reliance. Um, and aside from Zanara does or provides us, aside from what Zanara provides us with, we need to look at what our own capacity is. Uh, we have got uh, companies here that produce many of the materials needed for the repair of roads. We have many fine engineering companies in, in the city. Uh, and our engineering department in the city council itself um, has some very talented individuals. And so as, aside from what Zanara does, we've got to explore what means we, we have at our disposal. Um, if not to completely rehabilitate roads, then at the very least to repair potholes. So that will be an, an, an alternate strategy. Um, a, a final strategy, and I'm not sure whether this will work, is if we try to leverage the city's future income uh, to, to, to get international loans uh, to rehabilitate our, our road system on the understanding that these loans will be paid back over a number of years through, um, through a percentage being paid you know, from, from rates payments. But this is very much, this thought is very much in its infancy, but it is a, a possible uh, option if we, we work with organizations like the African Development Bank and, and others to see if we can rehabilitate our roads. You see, the problem is, as you know, Larry, that once you allow the maintenance of roads to, to drop, they deteriorate dramatically, and they're far more expensive to maintain um, than, than they are if you uh, persistently maintain the, the roads. And so in an ideal world, what we need to do is rehabilitate our roads now and, and then make sure that we um, competently and expeditiously maintain those those roads because that will be cheaper for us going forward into the future. But it's one you recall, Larry, at the beginning of this conversation, I said how daunted I was by this. Uh, when I look at the state of our roads and, and when I examine the cost of, of just maintaining those roads, it almost seems insurmountable. Um, and, and so the, the point I'm making is there, no, there are no easy solutions to this this question now because we have allowed our roads to deteriorate so much and it's going to cost us a lot more to uh, rehabilitate them than uh, it, it would have had we maintained we kept on maintaining them in the course of the last 40 years so I'm going to go through a couple of questions uh, that I got. The first one is I have interest in uh, giving life and reason to the city, its, uh, its province, but many rules and facilities are not used to public benefit. In fact, most of, if not all public events and promotions happen at a wedding venue. Uh, one centenary park, uh, no facilities or barricades. Uh, so it's stadiums not uh, accessible for entertainment use. 
Kumalo is residential. Queens has to maintain a turf. Then trying to purchase your own city council has put me up on a five-year long waiting list. Says, what is your solution to have, uh, do you have for modern day recreation? Because she goes to say, I say that because we have a very idle generation of young adults and one thing they turn to is partying and drugs. What what better way to fix than uh, in a controlled setting with less rigid establishments, international concerts, pop-up restaurants, food truck parks, um, uh, tech exposed, dance exposed activities, cafe and creative spaces, etc. So that's a question there that somebody sent through. That is a, such a fantastic question uh, and, and really got my imagination juices flowing. But um, let me go back in history. You know, um, when this city saw its greatest growth in the 1950s and 1960s, the town council was run by visionaries. There were people like uh, Hugh Ashton, um, who was not a Rhodesian front, you know, right-wing racist. He he was a visionary, and he developed what was arguably the most progressive city in the whole of Africa. Bulawayo in the 1950s, 1960s, had some of the best housing, the best uh, recreation parks, the best clinics, it had youth centers. It it was quite a remarkable uh, city. Uh, Sadly, um, in the 70s, that started to decline. And of course, since independence, it has declined. But many of those facilities are still there. They are run down, but they are still there. Let's take, you mentioned Centenary Park. Centenary Park is the most amazing place, but uh, the reason it is no longer as attractive as it used to be is because it no longer gets reclaimed water. Um, In the past, uh, we had a vast amount of um, reclaimed water available, and that was poured into uh, Centenary Park. But because of our sewage problems, the, the process of processing of sewage, and because of the age of the pipes, uh, we have very little reclaimed water, which which is now going. And, and so once we've dealt with the sewers, once we've secured our supply of raw water, this has to be the next thing that we, we look at. But it, it has to be in that uh, sequence. Um, but we do, in theory, have access to that water again. And, and um, we, we're going to have to resuscitate places like Centenary Park, but also right across the, the high-density suburbs, there are recreational parks. Uh, some of them have been taken over. People have been planting crops, but they are there. Um, the, the swings and the, the other equipment is dilapidated. Uh, it's going to take a lot of money to, to rehabilitate those. But the area is set aside, and there are facilities there, like toilets and the like, and that that has to be our focus. But where my my imagination juices got flowing was in what you were saying about pop-up restaurants and and concert areas. Uh, To be frank, I haven't given thought to that, but um, certainly 
some of the most vibrant cities that I've visited in the world uh, have these these facilities. They are largely run by young people. They add an incredible vibe to any city, and that is that is something that we're going to uh, have to have a look at. If you take, for example, Centenary Park, um, you know, if you walk through Centenary Park, there there are facilities there that are now closed. Uh, there used to be a you know storeroom, uh, sorry, you know, tuck shop and shops. Um, which, which are now empty and, and closed. We, we're going to have to look to see whether we can't use and lease out some of those. But you, you can't do it in isolation. Centenary Park now is dry. It, um, it's quite dirty. There's quite a bit of litter. They're none of the lawns that used to be there, they, it's, it's dust. So you've, you've got to focus on making it into a more attractive site. And then perhaps we can attract uh, people in to, to do these pop-up restaurants, to have concerts there, music shows, and, and make it a, a real center for young people in particular. So thank you to that listener who raised it. Uh, but I, I guess the other thing that she asked was uh, being put on a five-month, uh, five-year waiting list if she wants to de- develop her own space. Is there any solution around that? Well, there is a solution to that. I don't know why there's a five-year um waiting list. Um, I don't know the name of your listener, but I encourage her to write to me um, and and show me, you know, when she applied and, and the re- reply she, she was given. In my view, that's unacceptable. Five years is totally unacceptable. If she's got a good business plan in an area where she wants to operate, um, then that kind of thing should be expedited so that we... Um, you know, we encourage other people like her to do a similar thing. And it's win-win because they then uh, can promote a, a business idea and the city gets revenue and, and people are happy. So it's just win-win-win and, and we shouldn't be putting any obstacles in the path of, of people who want to do that. So tell her. She she can write to me. I make no secret of my email address, stateofcoltart at gmail.com. She's welcome to write to me. Um, and I, I will certainly raise it with the, the relevant authorities. Okay, I had not asked her if I uh, should really reveal her name, but I'll give you her name later on, and I'll encourage her oh, to get it right. Did you so that when you get the, the program, okay, um, so, so that she so that at least when the email comes in, she'll be able to reference it. Then the other question that was asked is the. Uh, the formalization of transparency of housing space. For the longest time, there's been waiting lists. Even today, housing is a right, but in today's world, it's used as a tool for bribery. What is the solution for that? Well, the solution is um, having complete transparency and, and the hotline. In, in my acceptance speech last week, I said that we are going to set up a hotline that will come into the audit committee. Uh, we will publicize that hotline, and I encourage the residents of Bulgaria to use that hotline if they find that their applications for stands or any other thing is being subject to, to corruption. So that's that's number one, that we, we provide an acceptable process whereby people can report corruption. Secondly, it comes down to... Um, us, us having complete transparency in, in the way we, we run the council. Um, and 
I've said very clearly to, to councillors that um, there will be a, a zero-tolerance approach that won't just be applied to employees, it will also be applied to councillors. And I will not hesitate. If I find that any councillors are trying to get backhanders uh, so that uh, people have put up the list or given some benefit, then I want to know that and um, I, I will do all in my power to, to ensure that people like that are exposed and that they bear consequences for it. Um, but, you know, let, let me come back to the issue of the hotline. Um, you know, ultimately, I, I have an office at City Hall. Uh, it is open to the public. Any person can come in and drop off a letter with my secretary. Um, and if people face corruption, then they, they need to use the hotline. And if that doesn't work or if they don't get a satisfactory response, then they must come to me. I've given an undertaking. Um, I see this as a, a massive issue, uh, and I am determined to deal with it. I dealt with it when I was Minister of Education. I took on, perhaps not corruption, but I took on the publishing cartel, where we had three principal publishing houses in this country who were charging, in my view, exorbitant fees for... Um, publishing educational books, and I dealt with that. I dealt with it through UNICEF. Uh, we went to a commercial tender in Denmark, in Copenhagen, and we saved 10 million US dollars uh, simply by being transparent and be, by being determined uh, to, to deal with corruption. So my feeling is if I can do it, if I was able to do it, then I can do it now. Excellent. Uh, and then the final question from someone else. They say, uh, this is somebody who's not from Bulawayo, uh, but they're from Arale. says, every time we travel to Bulawayo, one of the most difficult things to deal with is slow internet or inadequate access to internet. Do, what is the plan for that? Well, I'm, I'm surprised. Um, I'm in this conversation with you now on fiber, and I, I have an outstanding internet connection here in my office. Um, so I am surprised. Um, I don't think that Bulawayo is any worse than Harare. I think much depends on the, the type of internet access you, you have. Uh, but clearly we've got to encourage companies that supply internet services to expand in Bulawayo. There are a lot of areas of Bulawayo not serviced by fiber. It's exceptionally expensive if you're not uh, close to an existing fiber line. Um, but the other thing that we have to look at, not just from the perspective of Bulawayo, but from the perspective of the nation, is to see whether we can't use uh, Starlink, you know, Musk's program to try and get uh, satellite um, internet services, high speed, high quality. Um, and... You know, I stress, this is beyond my, my power as a mere mayor of, of the city, but I would certainly support uh, licenses being granted to Starlink so that people can access Starlink. Um, 
and perhaps it will. There's, there's nothing like a good dose of competition to, to make the local uh, suppliers of ground-based as opposed to satellite-based internet services more more competitive and cheaper for consumers. Well, I think the the incoming, well, the information ministers say that the uh, license application from uh, Starlink had been received and was likely to be accepted. So I think that's going to happen. But I, I guess some, uh, another idea that could be thought of is the government reached the last time, the last administration said that certain territories and certain cities could license ISPs that would be local to those areas and be able to give ultra, uh, you know, in, local localized internet solutions for people in that area so that the solution is not coming through from Harare to Tuvlai. Maybe, maybe conversations could be had around that particular type of thing. Yeah. So, so the now finally, I want to talk to you about someone who was close to your heart, a participant in a sport that is close to your heart, the legendary Heath Streak. And I must again express my deepest condolences because I know how close you were uh, with him. For many who knew him, he was only a cricketer for, towards the end of his career because of what happened. Uh, some would have characterized him in a different way. But what do you say of the man? So. We all know his sporting prowess. Um, his statistics speak for themselves. He, he was arguably uh, one of Zimbabwe's greatest all-rounders, uh, one of our greatest opening bowlers, and uh, a highly competent uh, middle-order batsman. Um, so that can never be taken away from him. Um, but uh, that was just part of the man. You know, the man I knew was a dedicated husband, uh, a dedicated father of, towards his children, a dedicated son of his parents, and a dedicated, consistent friend. Um, you know, many sportsmen get big heads and um, they lose a common touch. Keith never lost that. Um, he always had a joke. He was always concerned about the underprivileged. Um, he was a great communicator. I mean, obviously, because he, unlike me, was completely fluent in the Sindabele, uh, he was able to communicate with in a far wider, uh, in a far more effective way than I could, could ever communicate. Um, but, you know, on top of that, he, he was a, a patriot. He, he, he had a deep love for Zimbabwe. Um, he took great pride in, in coaching uh, Zimbabwe. Uh, he believed in this country, believed in its people, um, and he believed in the future of cricket. And that, that's why he approached me in the, you know, my final months of being Minister of Education, Sport, Arts and Culture in 2013 to see if you know, I'd help set up a this academy for him, and I worked very closely with him and uh, Joseph Rego, and we set up the the trust that runs that that academy. Um, and that the, the academy uh, is a constant reminder of the, the passion, the patriotism that that he displayed. That he wanted to give back to society, 
he desperately wanted Zimbabwe to return to the unparalleled heights it achieved when he was at his peak, you know, in 1999, getting to the Super Six. Uh, this country has never got back to, to that standard where it was viewed, um, you know, in, in the top six to eight cricketing nations in, in the world. And, and it could take on anyone, could take on India, defeat India, defeat England, uh, as they did in 1997, 3-0, um, you know, defeat South Africa. Uh, we, we haven't been able to do that for a long, long time. And he, he wanted the nation to get back to that. And his idea was through the, the academy. Uh, and, I, and I hope that that will go from strength to strength and will be a constant reminder of, of this great man. I can't leave this conversation without touching on these allegations, you know, that were brought by the ICC. Um, that, that was a great tragedy. Uh, Heath, but if you look at the facts of that matter, uh, Heath was never involved in match fixing. He was naive, um, but he, he never acted criminally. And, and I think that the, the punishment meted out to him bore no relation to, uh, to the offence or the breach of the ICC regulations. And it affected him deeply. You know, he acted honourably there. Uh, when the name of the academy was changed, he supported it. Um, it hurt him greatly, but he he confronted it. He didn't duck from it. He accepted that he made mistakes, uh, and and that to me was a testament of of an, an incredible person. Just one final thing to speak to his character. Um, not many people, those who didn't go to his funeral, haven't heard this. But when you speak to his wife Nadine and his close family members. They will tell you what remarkable conduct and attitude he displayed in the final uh, weeks of, of his life. He, he had a horrific disease, uh, which caused him immense pain. But they all say he never complained. He still had a joke. Uh, he still had compassion and concern for those uh, around him. And to, to me, that, that is the mark of it of a truly exceptional uh, person. So he's a great loss to our nation. Um, we won't see the likes of him again. And I just hope that the entire nation now can work to make the academy a, a great success uh, and so that it starts to generate players of, of his caliber. And through that, we get Zimbabwe back up to the pinnacle of, of cricketing in, in the world, because that's where we should be. We should be one of the top nations. And uh, you having said that, there was a tribute uh, from Zimbabwe cricket, even though the relationship did not end well. That was good to see. And also even President Nangagwa came out in effusive, uh, you know, praise of, of his streak. Are there any plans to honour him in any way in Vilayu? So the one thing I, I spoke at um, the event, which is held this past Saturday. Um, it, it's an event where 13 of the poorest schools uh, compete in a T20 tournament. And I spoke at the prize giving where the sponsors of Mutual and Cabs were, were present. And I, I think that the most fitting thing we can do in the short term is to uh, to take the 
to change the, the name of the academy back to the Heath Street Cricketing Academy. You know, I hope that at the very least we can do that. And then uh, using the academy grounds, it would be really nice to, to have some form of memorial, um, perhaps a little museum uh, where people can reflect, you know, and in this day of technology, wouldn't it be wonderful if you could have a small museum with some of the cricketing highlights from, from Heath's playing days where, you know, for example, I think he took a Fifer at Lords against England um, to have those, those wickets uh, showed on, on video um, just to not only memorialise him, but, but also to perhaps inspire uh, future generations of, of cricketers. And so finally, still on cricket, every time I see you at Queen's Sports Club, you're always in the crowd. Uh, why is that the case? And now that you're the mayor, is that going to change? Well, um, uh, and just to be specific, you know, everybody thinks in the crowd means somewhere up in the special seats in the VIP or in the crowd. I, I mean, literally among the people and not, not in the special seats. Well, let me answer that in two ways. I mean, you know, firstly, I, I'm a Kuru now. I've got seven grandchildren. Okay. I've got, I'm very blessed that all my children are still, all our children are still in the country. And they're my favorite people to watch cricket with. Um, you know, they're fun. Uh, they know the game. And yeah, they, they, they're a lot of fun. So I'm very happy to be in the crowd if I'm with my family and friends. I, I have the most enjoyable experience there. Uh, but of course, the other side of it is that duty sometimes calls. And when I was Minister of Sport, I would be invited to Zimbabwe cricket. And, and if I didn't go and sit in the box, then it would be perceived as, as snubbing uh, Zimbabwe cricket. I suppose it may be that as mayor, I might um, get the nod again to, to come and sit in the Zimbabwe cricket box. Um, and if that is the case, then I'm obviously going to have to perform the, the official duty of at the very least, putting my head in there. But mark my words, if my family is in the crowd, that's that's where I'll gravitate to. I don't know if they, I guess other people should shy away from that because everybody wouldn't want to start talking no. about <laughs> what issues they have. <laughs> well, yeah. Look, I don't. I want to. As you know, I'm passionate about my cricket, and I, I I don't really like thinking about politics or the economy, and I want to focus on when Zimbabwe is going to get its next wicket. Um, so, you know, that's the one downside of, of going into the crowd. But, Larry, you like that. I've seen you at the cricket. Yeah. Um, that is your most enjoyable experience. When you're in with the crowd, You, it, it gets a bit sterile up in those boxes. It does. It does. Absolutely does. So uh, before we go again, just the email address and if you have the hotline at, at, uh, at hand so that people can get in touch. Uh, so the email address, it's uh, it, that for the so, lady yeah, who wants to get in touch with you. is davidcolcott at gmail.com. It's yes. lowercase, just my name. Uh, we don't have the hotline number set up yet. Um, we're in the process of doing that. When do you think that'll be up? I hope within the next month we'll have that hotline. Bear in mind, it's not just you can't just put up a phone line. We are developing systems whereby 
uh, reports can be properly recorded, uh, assessed, and then taken to the audit committee for, for action. So we, we have to agree on those systems before we actually set up the hotline because, you know, if we set up a hotline and there's no process, then people will phone and, and get very frustrated because they'll make a report and there'll be no follow-up. Okay. So that, that process is in motion, but I hope within the next month or so that uh, we'll then be able to advertise the hotline. So people should follow the, um, the City of Bulawayo website. It, it will be posted on that, that website. And I'm sure that we'll also put uh, advertisements on social media and elsewhere. As you know, the City of Bulawayo has a Twitter site. Uh, that that will, will be well publicized. I'll make sure of that. Uh, your Worship, uh, you had a dramatic time as the minister. I'm expecting that this would be a li- little more dramatic because you're at home now. <laughs> so dealing with people, it's a different, it's a different uh, issue. Absolutely. You know, I mean, I, I greatly appreciated the opportunity to, to be a minister, uh, but Bulawa has always been my home. Uh, it's where the bulk of my family is. And um, although I'm daunted by this, uh, at, at least I've got a job I can do at home. But great speaking to you. Thank you for this opportunity, Larry. And um, I, I look forward to meeting up with you again soon at Queen's where we can shout our lungs out and, and hopefully our team will get to, um, to, to the World Cup next time. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Your Worship, and all the best. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Cheers. Okay, Larry. Thank you. I I really appreciate it. And that's it for this week's episode. Add us to your podcatcher or on iTunes now so that you can make sure you never miss out on another second of our wonderful podcast. We would hate for you to miss out. Have a great week, everyone. Hey, you're listening to Career Talks with Larry Curie.